All right, everybody, welcome back to the American History Podcast. In today's episode, we are going to have a politicast looking at Congress. <clears throat> now, Congress is the most important representative institution in American government. Each member's primary responsibility in theory is to the district, you know, to their constituency, the residents in the area from which they are elected, not to the congressional leadership, a party, or even Congress itself. But the task of representation isn't really a simple one. Views about what constitutes fair and effective representation do differ. And constituents may have very different expectations of their representatives. Members of Congress have to consider these diverse views and expectations as they represent their districts. So the framers of the Constitution, they provided for a bicameral legislature. So that is a legislative body consisting of two chambers. And like we've talked on previous episodes... The framers intended for each of these chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate, to serve a different constituency. Members of the Senate are originally were appointed by the state legislatures for six-year terms, and they were to represent society's elite. So today, members of both the House and the Senate are erected directly by the people. So the 435 members of the House are elected from districts that are apportioned according to population, and the 100 members the Senate are elected in statewide vote, so with two senators from each state. And senators continue to have much longer terms in office and usually represent much larger and more diverse constituency than their counterparts in the House. (coughs) Now, the House and Senate play different roles in the legislative process. And in essence, the Senate is the more deliberative of the two bodies, the forum in which any and all ideas that senators raise can receive a thorough public airing. The House is the more centralized and organized of the two bodies. So they're better equipped to play a routine goal role sorry, in the government process. So in part, this difference stems from the different rules that govern the two bodies. And all those rules give the House leaders more control of the legislative process and allow the House members to specialize in certain legislative areas. The rules of the much smaller Senate give its leadership relatively little power and discourage specialization. Both formal and informal factors contribute to differences between the two chambers of Congress. Differences in the length of terms and requirements for holding office specified by the Constitution generate differences in how members of each body develop their constituencies and exercise their powers of office. For the House, the small size and relative homogeneity of their constituencies and the frequency with which they must seek re-election every two years make the members more attuned to the legislative needs of local interest groups. And the result is that members of the House most effectively effectively and frequently serve as the agents of well-organized local interests with very specific legislative agendas. For instance, used car dealers seeking relief from regulation, labor unions wanting more favorable legislation, farmers looking for higher subsidies. And because House members seek re-election every two years, they are interested in doing what their constituents want right now. And senators, on the other hand, they serve larger and more heterogeneous constituencies. So as a result, they're somewhat better able to, than members of the House to act as agents for groups and interests organized on a statewide or national basis. And moreover, with longer terms in office being six years, senators have more time to consider new ideas or to bring together new coalitions of interests rather than simply serving existing ones. So for the founders... Congress was the national institution that best embodied the ideals of representative democracy. But what is the role of representative? 
Now, a member of Congress can interpret her job as representative in two different ways. As a delegate, acting on the expressed preferences of her constituents, or as a trustee, more loosely tied to constituents and empowered to make the decisions she thinks best. Now, the delegate role appears to be the more democratic because it forces representatives to heed the desires of their constituents. But this requires the representative to be in constant touch with constituents. It also requires constituents to follow each policy issue very closely. The problem with this form of representation is that most people do not follow every issue so carefully. Instead, they focus only on the issue or issues of the particular interest to them. Many people are too busy to get the information necessary to make informed judgments even on issues they care about. Thus, adhering to the delegate form of representation runs the risk that the voices of only a few active and informed constituents get heard. Although it seems more democratic at first glance, the delegate form of representation may actually open Congress up to even more influence by special interests. When congressional members act as trustees, on the other hand, they may not pay sufficient attention to the wishes of their constituents. In this scenario, the only way the public can exercise influence is by voting every two years for representatives and every six years for senators. In fact, most members of Congress take this electoral check very seriously. They try to anticipate the wishes of their constituents even when they don't know exactly what those wishes are because they know that unpopular decisions can be used against them in the coming election. We have become so accustomed to the idea of representative government that we tend to forget what a peculiar concept representation really is. A representative claims to act or speak for some other person or group, but how can one person be trusted to speak for another? How do we know that those who call themselves our representatives are actually speaking on our behalf rather than simply pursuing their own interests? There are two circumstances under which one person reasonably might be trusted to speak for another. The first occurs if the two individuals are so similar in background, character, interests, and perspectives that anything said by one would very likely reflect the views of the other as well. This principle is at the heart of what is sometimes called sociological representation. The sort of representation that takes place when representatives have the same racial, gender, ethnic, religious, or educational backgrounds as their constituents. The assumption is that sociological similarity helps to promote good representation. Thus, the composition of a properly constituted representative assembly should mirror the composition of society. The second circumstance under which one person might be trusted to speak for another occurs if the two are formally bound together so that the representative is in some way accountable to those he is supposed to represent. If representatives can somehow be punished for failing to speak properly for their constituents, then we know they have an incentive to provide good representation even if their own personal backgrounds, views, and interests differ from the backgrounds of those they represent. This principle is called agency representation, the sort of representation that takes place when constituents have the power to hire and fire their representatives. Both sociological and agency representation plays a role in the relationship between members of Congress and their constituencies, but in many ways, members of Congress do not reflect the American population. The extent to which the U.S. Congress is representative and the American people in a sociological sense can be seen by examining social characteristics of the House and Senate today. For example, the religious affiliations of members of both the House and Senate are overwhelmingly Protestant. The distribution is very close to the proportion in the population at large. Catholics are the second largest category of religious affiliation, and Jews a much smaller third category. Religious affiliations directly affect congressional debate on a limited range of issues where different moral values 
views are at stake, such as abortion. African Americans, women, Latinos, and Asian Americans have increased their congressional representation in the past two decades, but the representation of minorities in Congress is still not comparable to their proportions in the general population. After the 2018 elections, Congress was 9% African American, 7% Latino, and 3% Asian. By contrast, the American population was far more diverse. So as the United States becomes more diverse, Congress has lagged behind in sociological representation. Similarly, the number of women in Congress continues to trail far behind their proportion in the population. And since many important contemporary issues cut along racial and gender lines, pressure for reform in the representative process is likely to continue until all groups are fully represented. The occupational backgrounds of members of Congress have always been a matter of interest because many issues split along economic lines that are relevant to occupations and industries. The legal profession is the dominant career of most members of Congress prior to their election, and public service or politics is also a significant background. In addition, many members of Congress have important ties to business and industry. Moreover, members of Congress are much more highly educated than most Americans. And this is not a portrait of the U.S. population. Congress is not a sociological microcosm of American society. So can Congress still legislate fairly or take account of a diversity of views and interests if it is not a sociologically representative assembly? There is reason to believe it can Representatives, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, they can serve as the agents of their constituents, even if they don't precisely mirror their sociological attributes. Yet, sociological representation is a matter of some importance. So, at the least, the social composition of a representative assembly is important for symbolic purposes. To demonstrate to groups in the population that the government takes them seriously, if Congress is not representative symbolically, then its own authority, and indeed that of the entire government, is reduced. A good deal of evidence indicates that whether or not members of Congress share their constituent sociological characteristics, they do work very hard to speak for their constituents' views and to serve their constituents' interests. The idea of representative as an agent is similar to the relationship of lawyer and client. So, true the relationship between the House member and an average of 710,767 clients in the district or the senator and millions of clients in the state is very different from that of the lawyer and client. But the criteria of performance are comparable. So one expects at the very least that each representative will constantly seek to discover the interests, interests of the constituency and take those interests into account as they govern. Whether members of Congress always represent the interests of their constituents is another matter. So there is constant communication between constituents and congressional offices, and the volume of email from constituents and advocacy groups has grown so large so quickly that congressional offices have struggled to find effective ways to respond in a timely manner. At the same time, members of Congress have found new ways to communicate with constituents. They have created websites describing their achievements, established a presence on social networking sites, and issued e-newsletters that alert constituents to current issues. Many also have set up blogs and Twitter accounts to establish a more informal style of communication with constituents. The seriousness with which members of the House attempt to behave as representatives can be seen in the amount of time they spend on behalf of their constituents. One way to measure the amount of time members of Congress devote to constituency service, called casework, is to look at the percentage of personal House and Senate staff that are assigned to district and state offices. And personal staff is non-committee member staff. 
So the service that these offices provide is not merely a matter of handling correspondence. So it includes talking to constituents, providing them with minor services, presenting special bills for them, attempting to influence decisions by regulatory commissions on their behalf, helping them apply for federal benefits like Social Security, small small business administration loans, and assisting them with immigration cases. In in many districts, there are two or three issues that are top priorities for constituents and therefore for the representatives. So, for example, representatives from districts that grow wheat, cotton, or tobacco will likely give legislation on these subjects great attention. In oil-rich states such as Oklahoma and Texas, senators and members of the House are likely to be leading advocates of oil interests. For one thing, representatives are probably fearful of voting against their district's interests. For another, the districts are unlikely to have elected representatives who would want to vote against them. On the other hand, on many issues, constituents do not have very strong views, and representatives are free to act as they think best. Foreign policy issues often fall into this category. So the influence of constituencies is so pervasive that both parties generally agree that nothing should be done to endanger the re-election of any member. Party leaders obey this rule fairly consistently by not asking any member to vote in a way that might conflict with a district interest. The sociological composition of Congress and the activities of representatives once they are in office are very much influenced by electoral considerations. Three factors related to the U.S. electoral system affect who gets elected and what they do once in office. The first factor concerns who decides to run for office and which candidates have an edge over others. The second issue is that of incumbency advantage. Finally, the way congressional districts lines are drawn can greatly affect the outcome of an election. So voters' choices are restricted from the start by who decides to run for office. In the past, decisions about who would run for a particular elected office were made by local party officials. A person who had a record of service to the party, who was owed a favor, or whose turn had come up might be nominated by party leaders. Today, Few party organizations have the party to power to slate candidates in this way. Instead, parties try to ensure that well-qualified candidates run for Congress. During the 1990s, the Republican Party developed farm teams of local offices who were groomed to run for Congress. Their success led Democrats to attempt a similar strategy. Even so, the decision to run for Congress is a personal one, and one of the most important factors determining who runs for office is an individual candidate's ambition. A potential candidate may also assess whether he can attract enough money to mount a credible campaign. The ability to raise money depends on connections with other politicians, interest groups, and national party organizations. Features distinctive to each congressional district also affect the field of candidates. For example, the way the congressional district overlaps with state legislative boundaries may affect a candidate's decision to run. A state-level legislature who is considering running for the U.S. Congress is more likely to assess her prospects favorably if her state district coincides with the congressional district because the voters will already know her. Incumbency plays a very important role in the American electoral system and in the kind of representation citizens get in Washington. Once in office, members of Congress gain access to an array of tools they can use to stack the deck in their favor of re-election. Their success in winning re-election is evident in the high rates of re-election for congressional incumbents, as high as 98% for House members and 90% for members of the Senate in recent years. It is also evident in what is called sophomore surge, the tendency for candidates to win a higher percentage of the vote when seeking subsequent terms in office. Furthermore, incumbents often win by large margins. 
Incumbency can help a candidate by scaring off potential challengers. In many races, potential candidates may decide not to run because they fear that the incumbent simply has too much money or is too well well too well liked or too well known or that a district's partisan leanings are too unfavorable. The effort of incumbents to raise funds to ward off potential challengers start early. In addition to incumbents' own efforts, each political party makes a special effort to re-elect incumbents viewed as especially vulnerable. The advantage of incumbency thus tends to preserve the status quo in Congress. This fact has implications for the social composition of Congress. For example, incumbency advantage makes it harder for women to increase their numbers in Congress because most incumbents are men. Women who run for open seats, that is, seats for which there are no incumbents, are just as likely to win as male candidates. Supporters of term limits argue that such limits are the only way to get new faces into Congress. They believe that incumbency advantage and the tendency of many legislators to view politics as a career mean that very little turnover will occur in Congress unless limits are imposed on the number of terms a legislator may serve. Yet the percentage of incumbents who are returned to Congress after each election also depends on how many members decide to run again. Because each year some members decide to retire, turnover in Congress is greater than the re-election rates of incumbents suggest. On average, 10% of the House and Senate decide to retire each election. The precarious economy and the backlash against the party in power made 2008 and 2010 difficult election years for some incumbents, particularly Democrats, given that their party controlled the presidency and both houses of Congress in a year when economic woes contributed to strong anti-incumbent sentiment. The final factor affecting who wins a seat in the House is the way congressional districts are drawn. Every 10 years, state legislatures must redraw congressional districts to reflect population changes. Because the number of congressional seats has been fixed at 435 since 1929, redistricting is a zero-sum process. In order for one state to gain a seat, another must lose one. The process of allocating congressional seats among the 50 states is called apportionment. States with population growth gain additional seats. States with a population decline or with less population growth lose seats. Over the past several decades, the shift of the American population to the South and the West has greatly increased the size of the congressional delegations from those regions. States that gain or lose seats must then redraw their congressional district borders. Not surprisingly, redistricting is a highly political process. Districts are shaped to create an advantage for the party with the majority in the state legislature, which controls the redistricting process in most states. In this complex process, those charged with drawing districts use sophisticated computer technologies to come up with the most favorable district boundaries. Redistricting can create open seats and may pit incumbents of the same party against one another, ensuring that one of them will lose. Redistricting can also give an advantage to one party by clustering voters with some ideological or sociological characteristics in a single district or by separating those voters into two or more districts. The manipulation of electoral districts to serve the interests of a particular group is known as gerrymandering. Some analysts claim that the Republicans have benefited from partisan gerrymandering since the 2010 redistricting cycle because they controlled the majority of state legislatures at the time. So, as we talked about with uh, the campaign and elections politicast, since the passage of the 1982 Amendments of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, 
race has become a major and controversial consideration in drawing voting districts. So these amendments, which encourage the creation of districts in which members of racial minorities have decisive majorities, have greatly increased the number of minority representatives in Congress. And these developments uh, can raise some thorny questions about representation. Some analysts argue that the system may grant minorities greater sociological representation, but has made it more difficult for minorities to win substantive policy goals while others dispute the argument. So the future of race and redistricting became a lot more uncertain after the 2013 Supreme Court decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which invalidated part of the Voting Rights Act requiring that the Justice Department approve the redistricting plans of jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination. And the ruling signaled that state legislatures would not be able to use the Voting Rights Act to justify packing minority voters into districts, and because the drawing of district boundaries often affects incumbents as well as the field of candidates who decide to run for office, it continues to be a key battleground on which political parties fight about the meaning of representation. So, as agents of their constituents, members of Congress have numerous opportunities to provide direct benefits or patronage for their districts. The most important such opportunity for direct patronage is in so-called pork barrel legislation, which specifies a project to be funded within a particular district. Many observers of Congress argue that pork barrel bills are the only ones that some members are serious about moving toward actual passage because they are seen as so important to members' re-election bids. A common form of pork barreling is the earmark, by which members of Congress insert into bills language that provides special benefits for their own constituents. So, but there is a uh, stop on earmarking. So, when the Democrats took over Congress in 2007, they vowed to limit the use of earmarks, which had grown substantially. And earmarks were connected to a lot of congressional scandals. So, the House passed a new rule requiring that the representatives supporting each earmark identify themselves and guarantee that they have no personal financial stake in the requested project. And a new ethics law applies similar provisions to the Senate. So though the new requirements appear to have had some impact, uh, nonetheless, in the midst of the sharp economic downturn in 2009, Congress passed an economic stimulus bill that contained more than 8,000 earmarks. And some analysts claim that the lack of earmarks contributes to congressional gridlock. They argued that earmarks provide congressional leaders with incentives to promote compromise among members. Supporters of this position contend that earmarks are not inherently an abuse of power and note that they often support legitimate district projects such as transportation and parks. There are a few other types of direct patronage. One important form of constituency service is intervention with federal administrative agencies on behalf of constituents. Members of the House and Senate and their staff spend a great deal of time on the telephone and in administrative offices seeking to secure favorable treatment for constituents and supporters. For example, members of Congress can assist senior citizens who are having Social Security or Medicare benefit eligibility problems. Most members of Congress have a constituent services section on their websites, providing information about what they can and cannot do to assist their constituents. A different form of patronage is the private bill. Unlike a public bill, which is supposed to deal with general rules and categories of behavior, people, and institutions, a private bill proposes to grant some kind of relief, special privilege, or exemption to the person named in the bill. 
And as many as 75% of private bills apply to uh, obtaining citizenship for foreign nationals who do not have resident status in the U.S. Other private bills address a diverse set of issues involving a claim against the federal government, such as problems with veterans' benefits or taxation. Private legislation is a congressional privilege that can be abused, but it is impossible to imagine members of Congress completely giving up one of the easiest, cheapest, and most effective forms of patronage available to them. It can be defended as an indispensable part of the process by which members of Congress can seek to fulfill their role as representatives, and obviously they like the privilege because it helps them to win re-election. The U.S. Congress is not only a representative assembly, but also a legislative body, and so to exercise its power to make laws, Congress has to first bring about something close to an organizational miracle. The building blocks of congressional organization include the political parties, the committee system, congressional staff, the caucuses, and the parliamentary rules of the House and Senate. Each of these factors plays a key role in the organization of Congress and in the process through which Congress formulates and enacts laws. Every two years at the beginning of a new Congress, the members of each party gather to elect their House leaders. House Republicans call their gathering the conference. House Democrats call theirs the caucus. The elected leader of the majority party is later proposed to the whole House and is automatically elected to the position of Speaker of the House with voting along straight party lines. The House Majority Conference or Caucus then elects a majority leader. The minority party goes through the same process and selects a minority leader. Each party also elects a whip to line up party members on important votes and to relay voting information to the leaders. Next in order of importance for each party after the speaker and the majority or minority leader is what Democrats call the Steering and Policy Committee. Republicans have a separate steering committee and a separate policy committee whose tasks are to assign new legislators to committees and to deal with the requests of incumbent members for transfers from one committee to another. At one time, party leaders strictly control committee assignments, using them to enforce party discipline. Today, in principle, representatives receive the assignments they want, but often several individuals seek assignment to the most important committees, which gives the leadership an opportunity to cement alliances when it resolves conflicting requests. Generally, representatives seek assignments that will allow them to influence decisions of special importance to their districts. Representatives from farm districts, for example, may request seats on the Agricultural Committee. Seats on powerful committees such as Ways and Means, which is responsible for tax legislation and appropriations, are especially popular. Within the Senate, the majority party usually designates a member with the greatest seniority to serve as President Pro Tempore, a position of primarily ceremonial leadership. Real power is in the hands of the majority leader and minority leader, each elected by party conference. Together, they control the Senate's calendar or agenda for legislation. Each party also elects a policy committee, which advises the leadership on legislative priorities. The committee system is central to the operation of Congress. At each stage of the legislative process, Congress relies on committees and subcommittees to do the hard work of sorting through alternatives and writing legislation. There are several different kinds of congressional committees. Standing committees, select committees, joint committees, and conference committees. The most important arenas of congressional policymaking are standing committees. These committees remain in existence from one session of Congress to the next. They have the power to propose and write legislation. The jurisdiction of each standing committee covers a particular subject matter, which in most cases parallels a major department or agency in the executive branch. Among the most important standing committees are those in charge of finances. 
The House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee are powerful because of their jurisdiction over taxes, trade, and expensive entitlement programs such as Social Security and Medicare. The Senate and House Appropriations Committees also play important ongoing roles because they decide how much funding various programs will actually receive. They also determine exactly how the money will be spent. A seat on an Appropriations Committee follows a member the or allows a member the opportunity to direct funds to a favorite program, perhaps one in his home district. Except for the House Rules Committee, all standing committees receive proposals for legislation and process them into official bills. The House Rules Committee decides the order in which bills come up for a vote on the House floor and determines the specific rules that govern the length of debate and opportunity for amendments. The Senate, which has less formal organization fewer rules, does not have a rules committee. Select committees are usually not permanent and usually do not have the power to present legislation to the full Congress. The House and Senate Select Intelligence Committees are permanent, however, and do have the power to report legislation, which means they can send legislation to the full House or Senate for consideration. These committees hold hearings and serve as focal points for the issues they are charged with considering. Congressional leaders form select committees when they want to take up issues that fall outside the jurisdictions of existing committees to highlight an issue or to investigate a particular problem. Select committees set up to highlight ongoing issues have included in the House. Have included the House Select Committee on Hunger, established in 1984, and the House Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming, created in 2007, but abolished in 2011 when Republicans assumed control of the House. So in 2003, an important select committee, the House Select Committee on Homeland Security, was created to oversee the new Department on Homeland Security. Unlike most select committees, this one had the ability to present legislation. Initially, the committee had only temporary status. It was made a regular permanent committee in 2005. Joint committees involve members from both the Senate and the House. There are four such committees, Economic, Taxation, Liberty, and printing. These joint committees are permanent, but they do not have the power to present legislation. The Joint Economic Committee and the Joint Taxation Committee have often played important roles in collecting information and holding hearings on economic and financial issues. Finally, conference committees are temporary committees whose members are appointed by the Speaker of the House and the presiding officer of the Senate. These committees are charged with reaching a compromise on legislation once it has been passed by the House and the Senate. Conference committees play an extremely important role in determining the laws that are actually passed because they must reconcile any differences in the legislation passed by the House and the Senate. When control of Congress is divided between two parties, each is guaranteed significant representation in conference committees. When a single party controls both houses, the majority party is not obligated to offer such representation to the minority party. Within each committee, hierarchy has usually been based on seniority, determined by years of continuous service on that particular committee. In general, each committee is chaired by the most senior member of the majority party, but the principle of seniority is not absolute. Example, when the Republicans took over the House in 1995, they violated the principle of seniority in the selection of key committee chairs. House Speaker Newt Gingrich defended the new practice, saying you've got to carry the moral responsibility of fielding the team that can win or you cheat the whole conference. Since then, 
Republicans have continued to depart from the seniority principle, often choosing committee chairs on the basis of loyalty or fundraising abilities rather than seniority. Over the years, Congress has reformed its organizational structure and operating procedures. Most changes have been made to improve efficiency, but some reforms have also been a response to political considerations. So, for example, the Republican leadership of the 104th Congress from 1995 to 97, seeking to concentrate more authority in the party leadership, reduced the number of subcommittees and limited the time committee chairs could serve to three terms. They made good on this in 2001 when they replaced 13 committee chairs. As a consequence of these changes, committees no longer had the central role they once held in policymaking. Furthermore, sharp partisan divisions have made it difficult for committees to deliberate and bring partisan expertise to bear on policymaking as in the past. With committees less able to engage in effective decision making, they typically do not deliberate for very long or call witnesses, and it has become more common in recent years for party-driven legislation to go directly to the floor, bypassing committees altogether. Nonetheless, committees continue to play a role in the legislative process, especially on issues that are not sharply partisan. The Congressional Institution's second in importance only to the committee system is the staff system. Every member of Congress employs many staff members whose tasks include handling constituent requests and, to a large extent, dealing with legislative details and the activities of administrative agencies. Staffers often bear the primary responsibility for formulating and drafting proposals, organizing hearings, dealing with administrative agencies, and negotiating with lobbyists. Indeed, legislators typically deal with one another through staff rather than through direct personal contact. Staffers even develop policy ideas, draft legislation, and, in some instances, have a good deal of influence over the legislative process. Representatives and senators together employ roughly 11,500 staffers in their Washington and home offices. In addition, Congress employs more than 2,000 committee staffers. These individuals make up the permanent staff that stays attached to every House and Senate committee regardless of turnover in Congress, and that is responsible for organizing and administering the committee's work, including doing research, scheduling, organizing hearings, and drafting legislation. Committee staffers can play key roles in the legislative process. Not only does Congress employ personal and committee staff, but it has also established staff agencies designed to provide the legislative branch with resources and expertise independent of the executive branch. These agencies enhance Congress's capacity to oversee administrative agencies and to evaluate presidential programs and proposals. They include the Congressional Research Service, which performs research for legislators who wish to know the facts and competing arguments relative to policy proposals or other legislative business. The Government Accountability Office, through which Congress can investigate the financial and administrative affairs of any government agency or program, and the Congressional Budget Office, which assesses the economic implications and likely cost of proposed federal programs. In addition to the official organization of Congress, an unofficial organizational structure also exists, the caucuses. Caucuses are groups of senators or representatives who share certain opinions, interests, or social characteristics. A large number of 
caucuses are composed of legislators representing particular economic or policy interests, such as the Travel and Tourism Caucus, the Steel Caucus, and concerned senators for the arts. Legislators who share common backgrounds have organized caucuses such as the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Congress for Women's Issues, and the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. All these caucuses seem to advance the interests of the groups they represent by promoting legislation, encouraging Congress to hold hearings, and pressing administrative agencies for favorable treatment. In recent years, some caucuses have evolved into powerful lobbying organizations well-funded by interest groups. The institutional structure of Congress is a key factor in shaping the legislative process. A second and equally important set of factors is the rules of congressional procedure. These rules govern everything from the introduction of a bill through its submission to the president for signing. Not only do these regulations influence the fate of every bill, but they also help determine the distribution of power in the Congress. The first step in getting a law passed is drafting legislation. Members of Congress, the White House, and federal agencies all take roles in developing and drafting initial legislation. Bills can originate in the House or the Senate, but only the House can introduce money bills, those that spend or raise revenues. The framers inserted this provision in the Constitution because they believed that the chamber closest to the people should exercise greater authority over taxing and spending. The bill is then officially submitted by a senator or representative to the clerk of the House or Senate and referred to the appropriate committee for deliberation. During the course of its deliberations, the committee typically refers the bill to one of its subcommittees which may hold hearings, listen to expert testimony, and amend the proposed legislation before referring it to the full committee for consideration. The full committee can, may then accept the recommendation of the subcommittee or hold its own hearings and prepare its own amendments. All right, so the next steps in the process are the committee markup section sessions in which the committees, they rewrite bills to reflect changes discussed during the hearings. In the partisan fighting that has characterized Congress in recent years, the minority party has charged that its members are often not given enough time to study proposed legislation before markup. So not allowing much time for readings of committee markups or bills themselves is usually a leadership tactic designed to push legislation forward before members can find items with which to disagree. Frequently, the committee and subcommittee do little or nothing with a bill that has been submitted to them. Many bills are simply allowed to die in committee without serious consideration. Often, members of Congress introduce legislation that they neither expect nor even desire to see enacted into law, but present many, mainly to please a constituency group by taking a stand. Many such bills are of narrow interest or stand little chance of passing given the political climate. As with most bills that are not reported on committee, uh, Representative Barbara Lee of California, her bill to introduce the Department of Peacebuilding Act of 2015 to establish a Department of Peacebuilding in the executive branch that would be dedicated to promoting peace and international affairs. This bill attracted little serious interest in only 26 co-sponsors. And these bills die a quick and painless death. Other pieces of legislation have Artist supporters and dying committee only after a long battle. But in either case, most bills are never reported out of the committees to which they are assigned. So in a typical congressional session, 80 to 90% of the more than 10,000 bills introduced die in the committee. In the House, the relative handful of bills that are presented out of committee must pass one last hurdle within the committee system, the Rules Committee, which determines the rules that will govern action on the bill on the House floor. 
In particular, the Rules Committee allots the time for debate and decides to what extent amendments to the bill can be proposed from the floor. A bill supporters generally prefer a closed rule, which puts severe limits on floor debate and amendments. Opponents of a bill usually prefer an open rule, which permits potentially damaging floor debate and makes it easier to add amendments that may cripple the bill or weaken its chances for passage. Thus, the outcome of the Rules Committee's deliberations can be extremely important, and the committee's hearings can be an occasion for sharp conflict. In recent years, the Rules Committee has become less powerful because the House leadership exercises so much influence over its decisions. And the next step in getting a law passed is debate on the floor of the House and Senate. Party control of the agenda is reinforced by the rule giving the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate the power of recognition during debate on a bill. Usually, the chair knows the purpose for which a member intends to speak well in advance of the occasion. Spontaneous efforts to gain recognition are often foiled. For example, the speaker may ask, for what purpose does this member rise, before deciding whether to grant recognition. In the House, virtually all the time allotted by the Rules Committee for debate on a given bill is controlled by the bill's sponsor and by its leading opponent. In almost every case, these two people are the committee chair and the ranking minority member of the committee that processed the bill or those they designate. These two participants are, by rule and tradition, granted the power to allocate most of the debate time and small amounts to members who are seeking to speak for or against the measure. Preference in the allocation of time goes to the members of the committee whose jurisdiction covers the bill. In the Senate, the leadership has much less control over floor debate. Indeed, the Senate is unique among the world's legislative bodies for its commitment to unlimited debate. Once given the floor, a senator may speak as long as she wishes. On a number of memorable occasions, senators have used this opportunity to prevent action on legislation that they opposed. Through this tactic, called the filibuster, small minorities or even one individual in the Senate can force the majority to give in. Filibusters can be ended by a Senate vote to cut off debate, called cloture. The threat of a filibuster ensures that in crafting legislation and proposing judicial appointments, the majority takes into account the viewpoint of the political minority. For much of American history, senators only rarely used filibusters, though during the 1950s and 60s, opponents of civil rights legislation often used filibusters to block its passage. In the last 20 years, the filibuster has become so common that observers routinely note that it takes 60 votes to get anything passed in the Senate. The 113th Congress from 2013 to 15 broke the record with 218 cloture votes. The 115th Congress held 192 cloture votes as of November 1st, 2018. So the filibuster is not the only technique used to block Senate debate. Under Senate rules, members have virtually unlimited ability to propose amendments to a pending bill. Each amendment must be voted on before the bill can come to a final vote. The introduction of new amendments can be stopped only by unanimous consent. This, in effect, can permit a determined minority to filibuster by amendment, indefinitely delaying the passage of a bill. Senators can also place holds or stalling devices on bills to delay debate. Senators place holds on bills when they fear that openly opposing them will be unpopular. Because holds are kept secret, the senators placing the holds do not have to take public responsibility for their actions. There have been several efforts to eliminate holds. So, once a bill is debated on the floor of the House and the Senate, the leaders schedule it for a vote on the floor of each chamber. Leaders do not bring legislation to the floor unless they are fairly certain it is going to pass. 
On rare occasions, the last moments of the floor vote can be very dramatic as each party's leadership puts its whip and organization into action to make sure that wavering members vote for the with the party. So getting a bill out of committee and through both houses of Congress is no guarantee that the bill will be enacted to law. It must be considered by a conference committee. Frequently, bills that begin with similar provisions in both chambers emerge with little resemblance to each other. Alternatively, a bill may be passed by one chamber but undergoes substantial revision in the other chamber. In such cases, a conference committee composed of the senior members of the committees or subcommittees that initiated the bill may be required to iron out differences between the two now dissimilar pieces of legislation. Sometimes members of leaders will let objectionable provisions pass on the floor, knowing that they will get the chance to make changes in conference. Usually, conference committees meet behind closed doors. Agreement requires a majority of each of the two delegations. Legislation that emerges successfully from a conference committee is more often a compromise than a clear victory for one side. In recent years, as we have seen, polarization in Congress has led to much less reliance on conference committees. Instead, leaders exchange amendments in the hope of reaching agreement. When a bill comes out of a conference, it faces one more hurdle. Before it can be sent to the president for signing, the House-Senate Conference Committee's version of the bill must be approved on the floor of each chamber. Usually, such approval is given quickly. Occasionally, however, a bill's opponents use this round of approval as one last opportunity to defeat a piece of legislation. The final step in passing a law is presidential approval. Once adopted by the House and Senate, a bill goes to the president who may choose to sign the bill into law or veto it. If the president does not sign the bill or veto it within 10 days and Congress is in session, the bill automatically becomes law. The veto is the president's constitutional power to reject a piece of legislation. To veto a bill, the president returns it unsigned within 10 days to the House of Congress in which it originated. If Congress adjourns during the 10-day period and the president has taken no action, the bill is also considered to be vetoed. This latter method is known as the pocket veto. The possibility of a presidential veto affects how willing members of Congress are to push for different pieces of legislation at different times. If they think a proposal is likely to be vetoed, they might shelve it until a later time. A presidential veto may be overridden by a two-thirds vote in both the House and Senate. A veto override says much about the support that a president can expect from Congress, and it can deliver a stinging blow to the executive branch. Presidents will often back down from a veto threat if they believe that Congress will override the veto. What determines the kind of legislation that Congress ultimately produces? According to the simplest theories of representation, members of Congress respond to the views of their constituents. In fact, the process of creating a legislative agenda, drawing up a list of possible measures, and deciding among them is a very complex one, in which a variety of influences from inside and outside government play important roles. External influences include a legislature's constituency and various interest groups. Influences from inside government include party leadership, congressional colleagues, and the president. Let us examine each of these influences individually and then consider how they interact to produce congressional policy decisions. Because members of Congress, for the most part, want to be reelected, we would expect the views of their constituents to be prim a primary influence on the decisions that they make. Yet, constituency influence is not so straightforward. In fact, most constituents pay little attention to politics and often do not even know what policies their representatives support. 
Nonetheless, members of Congress spend a lot of time worrying about what their constituents think because they realize that the choices they make may be scrutinized in a future election and used as ammunition by an opposing candidate. Because of this possibility, members of Congress do try to anticipate their constituents' policy views, especially if they think that voters will take them into account during elections. In this way, constituents may affect congressional policy choices even when there is little direct evidence of their influence. Interest groups are another important external influence on occasional po- on congressional policies. Members of Congress pay close attention to interest groups for a number of reasons. Interest groups can mobilize constituents, serve as watchdogs on congressional action, and supply candidates with money. When members of Congress are making voting decisions, those interest groups that have some connection to constituents in particular districts are most likely to be influential. And those groups with the ability to mobilize followers in many congressional districts may be especially influential. In recent years, Washington-based interest groups with little grassroots strength have recognized the importance of locally generated activity. Accordingly, they have sought to stimulate grassroots pressure with so-called astroturf lobbying. Such campaigns encourage constituents to sign form letters, postcards, or emails, which are then sent to congressional representatives. Lobbying campaigns set up toll-free telephone numbers for a system in which simply reporting your name and address to the listening computer will generate a letter to your congressional representative. One Senate office estimated that such organized campaigns to demonstrate grassroots support account for two-thirds of the mail the office received. As such campaigns increase, however, they become less influential because members of Congress are aware of how rare real constituent interest actually is. Many interest groups also use legislative scorecards that rate how members of Congress vote on issues of importance to that group. A higher low rating by an important interest group may provide a potential weapon in the next election. Interest groups can increase their influence over a particular piece of legislation by signaling their intention to include it in their scoring. Among the most influential groups that use scorecards, often posting them on their websites for members in the public to see, are the National Federation of Independent Business, the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, National Right to Life, the League of Conservation Voters, and the National Rifle Association. Interest groups also have substantial influence in setting the legislative agenda and in helping to craft specific language in legislation. Today, sophisticated lobbyists, when influenced by providing information about policies as well as campaign contributions to busy members of Congress. Close financial ties between members of Congress and interest group lobbyists often raise eyebrows because they suggest that interest groups get special treatment in exchange for political donations. Concerns about the influence of lobbyists in Congress mounted in the early 2000s when Republicans launched the K Street Project, named after the street in Washington where many high-powered lobbyists have offices. The K Street Project placed former Republican staffers in key lobbying positions and ensured a large and steady flow of corporate cash into Republican coffers. Congressional relationships to lobbyists came under close scrutiny when the lobbyist Jack Abramoff, a self-proclaimed big supporter of the K Street Project, pleaded guilty in early 2006 to charges of conspiracy, mail fraud, and tax evasion. Concern over such corruption led Congress to enact a new ethics legislation in 2007. Now, lobbyists are required to disclose the names of the individual contributors to these political donations. Although the new law provides additional transparency, revealing more about the relationship between lobbyists and members of Congress, it is widely viewed as lacking sufficient authority to go after those who are suspected of ethics violations. Moreover, the large sums of cash raised by super PACs have introduced a whole new set of questions about the role of special interests in politics, especially because donors to super PACs can remain anonymous.
Although they cannot openly coordinate with candidates, super PACs can endorse candidates by name and are often run by people uh, close to the candidates they support. In both the House and the Senate, party leaders have a good deal of influence over the behavior of their party members. This influence, sometimes called party discipline, was once so powerful that it dominated the lawmaking process. In the late 1800s, party leaders could often command the allegiance of more than 90% of their members. A vote in which half or more of the members of one party take one position while at least half the members of the other party take the opposing position is called a party unity vote. At the beginning of the 20th century, nearly half of all roll call votes in the House of Representatives were party votes. For much of the 20th century, the number of party votes declined as bipartisan legislation became more common. The 1990s witnessed a return to strong party discipline as partisan polarization drew sharper lines between Democrats and Republicans, and congressional party leaders aggressively used their powers to promote party discipline. By 2015, party discipline had been at an all-time high. Typically, party unity is greater in the House than in the Senate. House rules grant greater procedural control of business to the majority party leaders, which gives them more influence over House members. In the Senate, however, the leadership has few sanctions over its members. The former Senate Minority Leader, Tom Daschle, once observed that a Senate leader seeking to influence other senators has, as incentives, a bushel full of carrots and a few twigs. Though it has not reached 19th century levels, party unity has been on the rise in recent years because the divisions between the parties have deepened on many high-profile issues such as abortion, health care, and financial reform. Party unity scores rise when congressional leaders try to put a partisan stamp on legislation. To some extent, party unity is based on ideology and background. Republican members of the House are more likely than Democrats to have been elected by rural or suburban districts. Democrats are likely to be more liberal on economic and social questions than their Republican colleagues in both houses. These differences certainly help to explain roll call divisions between the two parties. Ideology and background, however, are only part of the explanation for party unity. The other part has to do with party organization and leadership. Among the resources that party leaders have at their disposal to reward loyal members who vote with the party are leadership packs, committee assignments, access to the floor, the whip system, log rolling, and the presidency. Leaders have increased their influence over members in recent years with aggressive use of leadership packs. Leadership PACs are organizations that members of Congress use to raise funds that they then distribute to other members of their party running for election. Republican congressional leaders pioneered the aggressive use of leadership PACs to win their congressional majority in 1995, and the practice has spread widely since that time. Party leaders can create debts among members by helping them get favorable committee assignments. These assignments are made early in the congressional careers of most members and cannot be taken from them if they later balk at party discipline. Nevertheless, if the leadership goes out of its way to get the right assignment for a member, this effort is likely to create a bond of obligation that can then be called on without any other payments or favors. This is one reason the Republican leadership gave freshmen favorable assignments when the Republicans took over in 1995. By offering attractive committee assignments to members in competitive races, especially to new members, Nancy Pelosi sought to boost her party's chances in the next elections, and she engendered loyalty to the party among its new members. The most important everyday resource available to the parties is control over access to the floor. 
With thousands of bills awaiting passage and most members clamoring for access in order to influence a bill or publicize themselves, floor time is precious. Floor time is allocated in both houses of Congress by the majority and minority leaders. More important, the Speaker of the House and the majority leader in the Senate possess the power of recognition. This seemingly insubstantial authority is, in fact, quite formidable and can be used to stymie a piece of legislation completely or frustrate a member's attempts to speak on a particular issue. Because the power is significant, members of Congress usually attempt to stay on good terms with the Speaker and the majority leader to ensure they will continue to be recognized. As House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi was particularly generous in offering freshman Democrats and other especially vulnerable Democrats an opportunity to speak on the floor. Some influence accrues to party leaders through the WHIP system, which is primarily a communications network for conveying the leader's wishes and plans to the members. Between 12 and 20 assistant and regional WHIPs are selected to operate at the direction of the majority or minority leader and the WHIP. They poll all the members to learn their intentions on specific bills, enabling the leaders to know if they have enough support to allow a vote, as well as whether the vote is so close that they will need to put pressure on undecided members. In those instances, the speaker or lieutenant will go to a few party members who have indicated that they will switch if their vote is essential and expedient that the leaders try to limit to a few times per session. The WHIP system helps maintain party unity in both houses of Congress, but it is particularly critical in the House of Representatives because of the large number of legislatures whose positions and voters must be accounted for. The majority minority whips and their assistance must be adept at inducing compromise among legislators who hold widely differing viewpoints. An agreement between two or more members of Congress who have nothing in common except the need for support is called log rolling. The agreement states, in effect, you support me on Bill X and I'll support you on another bill of your choice. Since party leaders are the center of the communications networks in the two chambers, they can help members create large log-rolling coalitions. Hundreds of log-rolling deals are made each year, and although there are no official record-keeping books, it would be a poor party leader whose whips did not know who owed what to whom. In some instances, log-rolling produces strange alliances. Of all the influence that maintain the clarity of party lines in Congress, the influence of the presidency is probably the most important. Indeed, the office is a touchstone of party discipline in Congress. Since the late 1940s under President Harry Truman, presidents each year have identified a number of bills that they want to be considered part of their administration's program. By the mid-1950s, both parties in Congress began to look to the president for these proposals, which became the most significant part of Congress's agenda. The president's support is a criterion for party loyalty, and party leaders are able to use it to rally some members. So we've considered the major factors that influence congressional decisions, but what happens if Congress as a whole can't decide and fails to act? And some recent Congresses have been notable for their inability to pass laws. At the end of its second session, as the end of its second session neared, the 115th Congress seemed likely to become the least productive Congress in modern history in terms of number of new laws enacted. A number of those new laws, however, were important. These included a sanctions law targeting Russia, Iran, and North Korea, the enactment of a major revision of the tax code, a budget bill that averted a government shutdown, and bills overturning a number of Obama-era regulations. The Republican-controlled Senate also approved the appointment of two conservatives, Neil Gorsuch and Brad Kavanaugh, to the Supreme Court. These appointments are likely to affect Supreme Court decisions for years to come.
So Congress's frequent inability to decide reflects the deep ideological differences that separate the two parties. Efforts to measure the ideological distance between the two parties show that since the mid-1970s, Republicans and Democrats have been diverging sharply and are now more polarized than at any time in the last century. Democrats have become more liberal and Republicans have become more conservative on issues related to the economy and the role of government. But the Republican Party has experienced the greatest ideological shift, becoming sharply more conservative. Moreover, because congressional districts are increasingly homogeneous in their ideology, in part due to gerrymandering, but mainly because of natural clustering of the population, most members of Congress are in safe seats. Their constituents will not punish them for failing to compromise. Moreover, active mobilizations by organizations on the right, such as the Club for Growth, means that Republican members of Congress who support compromises might be punished. These outside organizations have financed alternative candidates to challenge members who vote against the organization's positions. However, congressional polarization is here to stay so long as voters elect representatives with sharply different views about what government should and shouldn't do. Until there is more agreement about the role of government and the best way to manage the budgetary challenges that face the country, congressional standoffs on major legislation will remain a regular feature of American politics. In addition to the power to make the law, Congress has at its disposal an array of other instruments through which to influence the process of government. The Constitution gives the Senate the power to approve treaties and appointments, and Congress has a number of other powers through which it can share with the other branches the capacity to administer the laws. Oversight, as applied to Congress, refers to the effort to oversee or supervise how the executive branch carries out legislation. Oversight is carried out by committees or subcommittees of the Senate or the House, which conduct hearings and investigations to analyze and evaluate bureaucratic agencies and the effectiveness of their programs. Their purpose may be to locate inefficiencies or abuses of power, to explore the relationship between what an agency does and what a law intends, or to change or abolish a program. Most programs and agencies are subject to some oversight every year during the course of hearings on appropriations, the funding of agencies and government programs. Committees or subcommittees have the power to subpoena witnesses, administer oaths, cross-examine, compel testimony, and bring criminal charges for contempt, refusing to cooperate, and perjury, lying under oath. Hearings and investigations are similar in many ways, but they differ on one fundamental point. A hearing is usually held on a specific bill, and the questions asked are usually intended to build a record with regard to that bill. In an investigation, the committee or subcommittee does not begin with a particular bill, but examines a broad area or problem and then concludes its investigation with one or more proposed bills. In recent years, congressional oversight power has increasingly been used as a tool of partisan politics. When the Democrats took control of Congress in 2007, congressional oversight increased dramatically. To highlight the importance of oversight, Democrats renamed the House Government Reform Committee, calling it the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, and added four new subcommittees dedicated to oversight. And they also hired more than 200 new investigative staffers. So the Constitution has given the Senate another special power, one that is not based on lawmaking. The president has the power to make treaties and to appoint top executive officers, ambassadors, and federal judges, but only with the advice and consent of the Senate. For treaties, two-thirds of those present must concur. For appointments, a simple majority is required. 
The power to approve or reject presidential requests includes the power to set conditions. In fact, the Senate only occasionally exercises its power to reject treaties and appointments, and despite recent debates surrounding judicial nominees, only a small number of judicial nominees have been rejected by the Senate or withdrawn by the President to avoid rejection during the past century, whereas hundreds have been approved. However, the recent increase in use of the filibuster to block judicial nominees led the Democratic Senate to bar the filibuster in deliberations about judicial and executive branch appointments. Most presidents make every effort to take potential Senate opposition into account in treaty negotiations with foreign powers. Instead of treaties, presidents frequently resort to executive agreements that do not need Senate approval. The Supreme Court has held that such agreements are equivalent to treaties. In the past, presidents sometimes concluded secret agreements without informing Congress of the agreement's contents or even their existence. For example, American involvement in the Vietnam War grew in part out of a series of secret arrangements made between the American presidents and the South Vietnamese during the 1950s and 60s. Congress did not even learn of the existence of these agreements until 1969. In 1972, Congress passed the Case Act, which requires that the president inform Congress of any executive agreement within 60 days of its having been reached. This provides Congress with the opportunity to cancel agreements it opposes. In addition, Congress can limit the president's ability to conduct foreign policy through executive agreement by refusing to appropriate the funds needed to implement an agreement. In this way, for example, Congress can modify or even cancel executive agreements to provide American economic or military assistance to foreign governments. The Constitution also grants the power of impeachment over the president, vice president, and other executive officials. Impeachment means to charge a government official, president, or otherwise with treason bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors and bring them before Congress to determine guilt. That is all the Constitution says that impeachment is to be used for. Impeachment is thus like a criminal indictment in which the House of Representatives acts like a grand jury, voting by simple majority on whether the accused ought to be impeached. That does not mean they are out of office. If a majority of the House votes to impeach, the impeachment trial moves to the Senate, which acts like a trial jury by by voting whether to convict and forcibly remove the person from office, which requires a two-thirds majority of the Senate. Now, the impeachment power is a considerable one. Its very existence in the hands of Congress is a highly effective safeguard against the executive tyranny so greatly feared by the framers of the Constitution. The House has initiated impeachment proceedings more than 60 times in U.S. history. Fewer than 20 officials were ultimately impeached, and only eight, all federal judges, were convicted by the Senate and removed from office. Controversy over Congress's impeachment power has arisen on the grounds for impeachment, especially the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors. A strict reading of the Constitution suggests that the only impeachable offense is an actual crime. But a more common working definition is that an impeachable offense is whatever the majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. In other words, impeachment, especially impeachment of a president, is a political decision. The political nature of impeachment was very clear in the two instances of presidential impeachment that have occurred in American history. In the first, in 1867, President Andrew Johnson, a Southern Democrat who had battled a congressional Republican majority over Reconstruction, was impeached by the House, 
but saved from conviction by one vote in the Senate. In 1998, the House impeached Bill Clinton on two counts for lying under oath and obstructing justice during the investigation into his sexual affair with the White House intern Monica Lewinsky. The vote was highly partisan with only five Democrats voting for impeachment on each charge. In the Senate, where a two-thirds majority was needed to convict the president, only 45 senators voted to convict on the first count of lying and 50 voted to convict on the second charge of obstructing justice. As in the House, the vote for the impeachment was highly partisan, with all Democrats and only five Republicans supporting the president's ultimate acquittal. There's actually been a third president now, President Trump. He's actually been impeached twice. But that is Congress, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you guys later. Take care.